All right, now John 16, and there will be no handouts tonight for John 16 or John 17, uh, but there are bonus handouts for next week when we begin the Passion Narrative. There will be more handouts than you will want. Now, this third of the farewell discourses is carefully delimited by an inclusio. These things I have spoken to you in order that, verse 1 and verse 33. What is included between verses 1 and 33 is a distinct unit, in this case, a distinct unit of testamentary discourse. Very few commentators break chapter 16 in this manner, that is, with verses 1 and 31 as the inclusio boundaries. I am very much out of step with the scholarly consensus, which continues the second farewell discourse from chapter 15 into chapter 16. Whether they mark the end of chapter 15's contents at 16.4, as some do, or 16.6, as others do, or somewhere else, nearly all contemporary scholars reduce Christ's final farewell speech in, uh, in 16 to less than verses 1 to 33 of this chapter. In the face of such an overwhelming consensus, I am tempted to knuckle under and concede to better minds than mine. That I am not yet prepared to yield is not due altogether to Scotch-Irish stubbornness, not altogether. The phrase, these things I have spoken to you, forms an inclusio and, please note the and, it forms a recurrent theme in the chapter, binding the entire discourse into an integral unit. Notice verse 4. These things I have spoken to you in order that. And that closes a section of intensely concrete persecution being cast out from the synagogues, doing that to the disciples because they have done it to Christ. In verse 6, notice again, these things I have spoken to you. Now, it brackets the unexpressed interrogative, where are you going, in verse 5. Now, you remember that phrase, Peter had asked Jesus, where are you going, following the foot washing in chapter 13, verse 36. Thomas's question about the way, indeed, was an acknowledgement that he did not know where Jesus was going, chapter 14, verse 5. Now, chapter 16, no one asks where Jesus is going. Is it clear by now? Has Jesus repeated emphasis upon his ascent to the Father finally gotten through these dunderheads? 
No, it is not the embrace of Christ's ascension that generates the unexpressed interrogative of verse 5 of chapter 16. That verse, which is such a contrast to the inquisitive queries by Peter and Thomas. No one says where you are going because they have fixated on his going, and that has resulted in sadness. Notice verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. So it's not that they now have arrived at an understanding of where he's going. The fact that he indicates that he is going away has produced sorrow in their heart, and that's why no one asks. This sorrow is parallel to the sorrow of the woman in the travail of childbirth, which you will notice is in verse 21 of this chapter. Now, this image of the sorrow of childbirth is an integral part of the Old Testament prophetic projection. The Old Testament prophetic projection of the so-called messianic woes. Jesus is signaling with this statement the arrival of that critical hour in the sorrow of his disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying that the prophetic promise of the coming of the woes of the Messiah is now upon him and upon those that belong to him. They are standing in the realization of the messianic woes. So that the union between the vine and the branches, which is in chapter 15, augurs messianic woes upon Jesus and messianic sorrows upon those united or identified with Jesus. In verse 25, we have once again, these things I have spoken to you. And that signals the end of the figurative illusion, that is the illusion to the woman in childbirth, and the approach of plain speaking. Verse 33 concludes the discourse with the aforesaid inclusio, so that in my opinion, chapter 16 from verses 1 to 33 is an integral unit of its own, bound together by parallel phrases, parallel themes, and parallel motifs. There is no reason to extend the second farewell discourse into chapter 16 or to shorten the third farewell discourse by truncating it as only a part of chapter 16. Now, you will remember that I have argued for a testamentary or covenantal farewell genre for these three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 14 harkens back to the patriarchal farewells in the context of covenant renewal. John 14 becomes the eschatological covenant renewal. Chapter 15 
harkens back to the prophetic garden vineyard of God motif. John 15 becomes the eschatological engrafting and fruitfulness of the new Israel. The eschatological Israel of God united unto Christ Jesus. What then is going on here in chapter 16? Covenant renewal, chapter 14. Covenant union, chapter 15. And chapter 16, covenant lawsuit. Covenant lawsuit. The Holy Spirit has been promised as a comforter in chapter 14, verse 16. The Holy Spirit has been promised as a witness to Christ, chapter 15, verse 26. But in chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, the Holy Spirit acts as a prosecutor. Verse 8 summarizes his brief. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Here is the other side of the work of the Holy Spirit. If we associate the Holy Spirit with regeneration, and rightly so, if we associate the Holy Spirit with the arabon, as Paul expresses it, the earnest, the down payment of redemption, and rightly so, the indwelling of holiness which Paul also talks about, this passage projects the Holy Spirit as an anticipation of the final judgment. John 16, 7-11 describes the Holy Spirit as bringing forth the eschatological character of the last judgment. At the great and final assize, the cosmos will stand guilty of sin. The cosmos will be declared unrighteous. The cosmos will be adjudged condemned. If we are correct in assessing the intrusionary character of the eschaton, heaven itself penetrates this era, this present era, in the history of redemption, bringing with it the birth from above, work of the Holy Spirit, the life from above, work of the Holy Spirit, the light from above, work of the Holy Spirit, etc. Then in John 16, Jesus reveals that the Holy Spirit will intrude the eschaton and the concomitant conviction of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment, all eschatologically final elements which the Holy Spirit moves forward into the present. Now this remarkably intrusionary mode of the eschatological aspect of the Spirit is a moving forward, a moving forward into the midst of time of the cosmic crisis usually associated with the very last days of history's time. And I commend to you Gerhardus Voss's 
article, the profound article on the eschatological aspect of the Pauline conception of the Spirit, where he deals with the Holy Spirit in the Pauline theology, which is found in the redemptive history and biblical interpretation. It was his contribution to the centennial celebration of Princeton University in 1912, and it is in many ways the most remarkable essay that he ever penned. The semi-eschatological work of the Holy Spirit is not merely a savor of life unto life, John 14 and John 15. It is a semi-eschatological savor of death unto death, John 16. You will notice I am stealing Pauline language, but nonetheless it fits what John is describing about the work of the Holy Spirit here. Here and now, right now, the Holy Spirit brings forward from the end of the cosmos conviction of sin. He prosecutes the world as sinful, violators of the law of God, transgressors of the creation covenant, guilty of unbelief. Notice, notice verse 9. Notice how verse 9 transfers the conviction of sin to disbelief in Christ, not believing in Jesus. When the judgment of the great white throne is set, unregenerate sinners will stand convicted by the divine accusers. They will be convicted by the divine accuser of not believing in Jesus, even as they are convicted now. On that day, the Holy Spirit will arise to take testimony, to assess the witness of the soul to the Son of God. And when the ugliness of unbelief of the sinful soul is displayed before that final court of judgment, when it is revealed and uncovered before the entire cosmos, when the sinful soul is unveiled in its indifference, yea, its hatred, for indifference is hatred for the Son of God, then the fullness of iniquity, the full measure of iniquity will be manifest. But even now, right now, the soul which does not believe in the Son of God is receiving the final judgment in the present. That eschatological conviction is now since the sending forth of the Spirit. That eschatological conviction of sin is now semi-eschatological. The unregenerate is convicted of the sin of unbelief now he will be convicted of the sin of unbelief, not yet. It is the marvel of God's grace that within this semi-eschatological tandem, the Holy Spirit reverses the cursed conviction of the sin of unbelief with a blessed assurance, a blessed assurance that those believing are the son, on the Son are no longer guilty of that sin. They are no longer guilty of the sin of unbelief. They are not guilty. That is a final judgment. Come forward into the midst of time. 
but where the conviction of the sin of unbelief remains, where unbelievers abide in that sin, the Holy Spirit is bringing forward even now a taste of the eschatological condemnation. The eschatological conviction of sin is shifted from accusation to acquittal when the paraclete shifts from cosmic prosecutor to heavenly transformer. When the Holy Spirit, the eschatological witness to the Son, brings the witness of the Son within the soul, then the ultimate crisis is over. It is over and done for anyone who has the Son dwelling within by the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit bathes the soul in the gift from above, faith in the Son of Man, the soul's critical condition is removed. He is no longer under the crisis of judgment. Faith comes to the bar. And faith says, The Spirit has poured me out to take away the sin of unbelief. Faith says, the Holy Spirit has poured me, faith, out to take away the sin of unfaith, unbelief. And the Son of God says, verily, verily, by my Spirit, you believe. And the soul says, verily, verily, O Lord God, by thy Spirit, I believe. Amen. And the crisis is done. But what of verse 10? What about the Spirit's prosecution concerning righteousness? This is very difficult for us. In Protestant orthodoxy, righteousness is a forensic category. The covenant lawsuit context, which I've suggested for this section, would be consonant with the forensic arena. Yet the eschatological character of the work of the Holy Spirit vis-à-vis righteousness here seems to be strangely out of place. If righteousness in its eschatological aspect is brought forward into now history, present history, it would seem to be justifying righteousness, not condemning righteousness. Paul talks about the righteousness of God intruding into the midst of history through the righteousness of Christ and that meritorious righteousness being imputed to the believer. The eschatological aspect of the work of the Spirit soteriologically and forensically intruded. That's Paul's doctrine of justification. Justification by an alien righteousness, that is a righteousness from outside of ourselves, not from inside ourselves. Justification by an alien righteousness is an eschatological concept. It is a coming forward of the forensic category of righteousness at the final judgment into the midst of time. Righteousness in John 16.10 is a forensic element of condemnation 
And John is not revealing that Pauline soteric aspect of righteousness eschatologically construed. He's turning this thing on its head. Righteousness is a condemning motif here. It's not a justifying motif here. It's very difficult for us as Protestants. What is John doing to us? What is Jesus doing to us? And more strangely, more strangely, this righteousness is tied to the absence of Christ, not the presence of Christ. The absence of Christ's righteousness, not the presence of Christ's righteousness. The departure of the Son with His righteousness becomes the ground of cosmic condemnation. What is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Why does He make us think this way? Why does He upset our neat Protestant categories? He's not upsetting them. He's enriching them. He's deepening them. He's making them more profound than you've ever dreamed of. Are you willing to listen to the text? Are you willing to listen to what Jesus is saying? Are you willing to listen to what the witness of the Son is to the witness of the Spirit? Or are you going to force this into your dogmatic canons and make it say what you want it to say? Beware. Beware of making the Word of God say what you want it to say. Well, let's try to understand what the Son and the Spirit are saying here. Let me retreat in order to festine lente, proceed slowly. The eschatological aspect of the Holy Spirit is under consideration in John 16 particularly the eschatological aspect of the prosecutor paraclete in bringing forward the cosmic crisis yet to come. In other words, a critical now of the discursive not yet via pneumatological intrusion. All right, now I used a fancy word that, pneumatological. Pneumatology is the study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Soteriology, study of the doctrine of salvation. Eschatology, study of the doctrine of the last thing. Anthropology, study of the doctrine of man. Pneumatology, study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'll repeat what I said. A critical now, critical having to do with judgment, crisis, a critical now of the discursive, the consummate, not yet, via pneumatological intrusion. That is the coming into history of the Holy Spirit. Eschatological accusation of sin moves from the future into the present by the work of the prosecutor's spirit. Now, verse 10 eschatological accusation of righteousness moves from the future into the present through the work of the Holy Spirit who is, note, the paraclete of the absent Son, the gone to the Father Son. 
but our minds reel at these categories and realities because they turn our forensic orientation of justification on its head. Conviction of righteousness in the eschatological aspect of justification is a positive notion, positive concept. But in John 16:10, righteousness in eschatological relation is a negative concept. Righteousness here is accusatory. Why? Why? Slowly. Notice again the connection between the spirit accusation of righteousness and the absence or departure or no longer visible Christ. Notice that, for this is the key. The righteousness by which the Spirit accuses is the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness no longer incarnate in our midst. You see... He doesn't really remove the forensic category. He brings it back in in a startling, revolutionary way. That incarnate righteousness which was in our midst when Jesus walked this earth is the measure by which the world is presently to be judged. The world is held up to the standard of Jesus' righteousness. And the judgment of the world according to this incarnate righteousness is the eschatological function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of a righteousness once incarnate and revealed in history, now seated at the right hand of glory, a righteousness absent from this world yet present in the world to come a righteousness which testifies that this world, this world, is even now all unrighteousness. In the absence of the incarnate righteousness of Christ in the present eon, the Holy Spirit testifies to the righteousness of heaven which once walked this earth. And that testimony of the Spirit is an accusation of absent righteousness now and not yet. Unless this absent righteousness is possessed now and not yet. Not but prosecution of righteousness absent remains now, not yet. You are going to be put in the crosshairs of this vortex. And the Holy Spirit even either brings you into the righteousness that is present, now glorified, once historically manifest, or He condemns you in the absence of it. And until you have it, you should move heaven and earth to possess what only the Spirit of the risen Christ can give you, namely, the righteousness of heaven. For you will not stand before him with any other righteousness. And so the Spirit testifies. 
the absent righteousness by its very absence. By its very absence. Semi-eschatologically accuses those from whom it is absent. You have no righteousness of heaven. And the Spirit bears witness through the righteousness which was once incarnate in history by Jesus of Nazareth. Even all the liberals think it was the greatest man that ever lived. The Spirit, by that common grace testimony, witnesses to that perfect righteousness now absent. And in putting you in the interface of that condemnation reveals to you that there is no other righteousness for your salvation save that absent, historically manifest, heaven-glorified righteousness which is in the Son of the Father. The righteousness which once was manifest yet is no longer evident becomes an eschatological accuser. The Spirit realizes, the Spirit actualizes the force, the power, the presence of the one incarnate righteousness so as to charge the cosmos, to charge the world with its absence. Says the Holy Spirit to the unbelieving world, I charge you with unrighteousness. You are guilty of unrighteousness now. And the only thing that's going to happen at the final judgment is the execution of the sentence. And hence, absent righteousness becomes the ground, the meritorious ground, the sole meritorious ground of cosmic accusation. When the Spirit is the vehicle of present righteousness, there, there is the ground of cosmic justification. Why does Paul say, he was justified in the Spirit? Because you must be justified in the Spirit. So, praise God that the righteousness of Christ is not absent from you who believe on his righteous name. An eschatological accusation of death. But praise God that the righteousness of Christ is present to you, you who believe on his name. An eschatological vindication of life. Now, by now, you should be able to anticipate what I'm about to say about verse 11. The judgment of this world's ruler is a now reality. While we associate the final judgment of Satan with the end of history, Christ is teaching us here. <clears throat> that the spirit paraclete prosecutes the judgment of Satan now. Since the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, the ruler of this world has been judged. Surely, 
This is an eschatological concept. The eschatological judgment of Satan has moved from the end of history to the midst of history. Satan's judgment occurred 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. The accuser of God's elect son was judged at the cross and at an empty tomb. And that judgment against the Son of God's accusers was the statement, His doom is sure. His doom is sealed. It is sealed in bloody hands, bloody feet. It is sealed in an empty tomb. Satan has been judged and condemned He can have no power over you who belong to the Son of Righteousness. None. That eschatological judgment has been prosecuted by the Spirit even now, so that even now the accuser cannot judge you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Satan? The Satan, ha-accuser? No. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has been guilty of the accusation. And Jesus has trumped Satan. No more can that judgment be prosecuted against you then that accuser can judge Christ. Is Satan going to accuse Jesus at the last judgment? Is Satan going to accuse Jesus between now and the last judgment? Is Satan going to say, you are damned, Jesus, between now and the last judgment? Jesus says to Satan, I have damned you. I have turned your accusation on your head. And I have left you with no power, Satan. My body is not in that grave, Satan. And my spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit assures your heart that in possessing the one judged, accused, and condemned in your place, Satan has been judged, accused, and condemned. The Holy Spirit does not accuse you. The Holy Spirit accuses Him, the ruler of this world. Ha <laughs> ha! That accusation did not fall upon me. Because it does not fall upon my Lord. It falls upon Him. Do you doubt that Satan will be confined, consigned to the the lake of fire forever? He will be adjudged a liar and false accuser forever and ever? Do you doubt? Jesus is telling you. Even now. He has been judged.
The prosecutor's spirit has descended to you with this accusation. The not yet judgment of the evil one has been accomplished even now. And it is past. It is past for you who belong to the righteous one. The son of the father in heaven. The covenant lawsuit prosecuted by the paraclete has been concluded. 2,000 years ago, it was concluded in a semi-eschatological crisis, a realization of now, not yet drama. The sin of unbelief prosecuted now, not yet. The absent righteousness prosecuted now, not yet. The ruler of this world prosecuted now, not yet. The existence of this anti-trinity, the existence of this anti-trinity, sin, righteousness, judgment, parallels the hostility of the world, which concluded chapter 15. In fact, the shift from focus upon cosmic hatred in chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, to prosecutorial witness of the paraclete in chapter 16, 8 to 11, is developmental. It is organically progressive. Because of the clash between the world and Christ, the Holy Spirit's task in the world, absent Christ, is to reveal and counter this enmity. The subtlety in John 16 is that now the Spirit becomes the foil of Christ Himself. The Holy Spirit now in His absence becomes the foil of Christ Himself. What has been hurled against the incarnate Son of God will now be unveiled and exposed by the paraclete. The clash of the two worlds, the world of the Son and the world of the devil, grips his disciples, verse 2. Grips Christ himself, verse 32. The anti-accuser, not the paraclete spirit who accuses the satanic elements, verses 8 to 11, but the anti-accuser who prosecutes Christ and his own, the satanic accuser, excommunicates. He murders. He scatters. He alienates. He isolates. This is the work of this dread satanic anti-trinity. Gripped by the anti-prosecutor, the paraclete of hate. Notice the ironic, ironic reversal. The paraclete of hate. The disciples are warned that they will be cast out of the synagogues. Verse 2. The de-synagoguing of the lovers of Jesus will be regaled as a great virtue excommunicating those who love the Lord Jesus from the cultic centers of the people of God of the former era will be esteemed sumum bonum, the greatest good, 
the shift in the ages turns hate into love. Yea, turns murder into preservation of life. If the paraclete of the antithesis could persuade the world 2,000 years ago that evil was good and good was evil, why are we surprised that the state of Oregon can adopt a euthanasia proposition that fetal murder is called a choice, that a former White House womanizer who was wont to be photographed carrying his Bible from church on Sunday in photo op after photo op after photo op, and the mainline denominations except practicing homosexuals and lesbians at the Lord's table, if the grip of the antithesis declared by our Lord is the grip of untruth, the apparent triumph of the ruler of this world, then excommunication of Christians will be good. Excommunication of Christians will be commendable. Excommunication of Christians will be regarded under the legislation of defending against hate speech. Martyrdom of Christians, the murder of Christians will be good. It will be regarded as a commendable virtue. Just ask the Maronite Christians who took to the streets in droves today in Beirut. They've been dying for 30 years. Excommunication of Christ is good, commendable, and a virtue. Martyrdom, the murder of Christ, was good, commendable, and a virtue. The anti-trinity turns good into evil, and evil into good. It is always so. And if you believe that in sitting on the sidelines watching your evening news of a parade of, you know, media-induced spot images is nothing other than you sitting in the arena and watching the clash between two world orders, then you don't understand your role in the light of the kingdom of heaven. You're watching war. You're watching war between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of heaven. That's what you're watching. You are in the drama of the prosecutorial work of the Holy Spirit, whether you understand it or not. That is what Jesus is telling you here in John 16. Since Jesus came, nothing's the same. And if you think it is, if you think it is, I fear for your Christianity. I do seriously fear for your Christianity. Jesus has come to change you so that you are not the same. And if you can fold your pious hands and go about your little simple devotions and think that you've done your deed for the day and not love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're still far from the kingdom of heaven. Far, far from the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has to be the consuming passion of your heart, your life. More important to you than your husband, more important to you than your children, more important to you than your wife, more important to you than anything else in this world, more important to you than your job, more important to you whether you ever see tomorrow. Jesus has to be 
the heart and soul center of your existence. Everything you do is oriented around what Jesus came to do for you. Since Jesus came, nothing is the same for you. No. Cannot be. Or you don't love him. Or you're window shopping. You're just playing on the outside. You're just pretending to go through the motions. You're sitting in the pew and acting it out. That is not what the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ came to do to you, for you, in you, with you. Don't sit on the sidelines. Get into the game. Get into the text. Get into Christ. And nothing will be the same. Now, you see, this is why Jesus says the servant is not greater than his master. The antithesis of hate, enmity, murder, the antithesis of the Antichrist grips Jesus. Do you see what he does for you? He allows that whole diabolical trinity to grip him, squeeze him, and kill him for you. Lewis's Aslan, first of the Narnia Chronicles, is brilliant. If you've not read it, you need to read it. He catches what exactly happened to Jesus in metaphor, in symbol. When Aslan allows himself to be tied to the stone table so that the children can be saved. Lewis sees it. You should see it more richly even from this chapter. Jesus is projecting the incarnational and transcendent union between himself and his beloved disciples in chapter 16. If they excommunicate his disciples, it is because they have excommunicated Jesus. They excommunicated him, therefore they excommunicate his disciples. The disciples are cut off. They are cut off from everything but Christ. How crucial it becomes for them to hold on to Christ. How crucial it becomes that Jesus project himself, his wonderfully saving, indwelling self, into his beloved disciples in chapter 16 so that they will be prepared. If they kill his disciples, it is because they have killed him. They kill him, therefore they kill his disciples. The disciples are cut off from life. Only Christ, who is the life, remains. They must be content with a life of Christ. It is absolutely critical that Jesus prepare his disciples 
to hold on to him. Jesus is projecting the incarnational and transcendent union between himself and his beloved disciples in chapter 16. If they are scattered, leaving him alone, it is because his solitary loneliness will be the means to gather them unto himself in the resurrection. After the resurrection, they will know. They will know once and for all that he has not left them alone. He will come to them and bring them to himself. After the ascension, they will know. They will know that he has not left them alone. He will send his presence to them, his spirit to indwell and bind them to one another as the spirit binds them to the Lord of glory. Can anything be as satisfying as this union with Christ by the Spirit? Can anything be sweeter than the love of Jesus spread abroad in your heart or my heart? Can anything in this world compare to affection, the affection of Jesus for you? your affection for him. And if it is there, then you must be prepared to suffer. John 16 is an elaboration of the hate motif announced at the end of chapter 15. But what is general in chapter 15, becomes concrete and particular in chapter 16. And the history of the church bears witness to the outworking of the cosmic enmity against Jesus and his servants. It is for this reason that Christ's ringing conclusion to his farewell discourses in verse 33 of chapter 16 has down through the ages gripped the lovers of Jesus with the power and assurance of the age to come. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. That is a present tense. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. The eschatological realization of Christ's triumph is a triumph which dates from Calvary and Pentecost. A future triumphalism is an implicit rejection of Christ's words here. Christ announces a present triumphalism. And in the genre of the antithesis, it is the world which is displaced, notice. The world is overcome and displaced superseded and transcended in the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God. The world is left. It is set aside. It is transcended by the eschaton. And it is into that eschaton that Christ enters at the conclusion of His work. It is that eschaton which endures. It is that eschaton which intrudes itself into this present evil world. And it is that eschaton which is the antithesis of this cosmos. We are not seeking a restored cosmos. We are seeking a place where Christ has gone and is even now 
the place where he abides, having overcome the world, the place which is the perfect consummate antithesis of the cosmos. Terra firma eschatologized nonsense. I want to go where Jesus is now. Absolutize the earth as if this world is not going to be dissolved by a fervent heat and absolutely atomized so that Jesus in His present glory will be all in all to those that are in Him in that arena. Do you see? You cannot make this arena the arena of that glory where He is seated right now saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you there. Not here. Now, if I get a little excited about that, you will understand that the implicit triumphalism of whether it's post-millennialism or some kind of reconstructionist amillennialism is as contradictory to what Jesus is saying here in the 16th chapter of John as it is to the tenor of the whole New Testament. There is no this worldly triumphalism. Because the world to which Jesus has gone is the triumphant world, and that's the world where the saints in glory rest. Right now. And they will rest forever. If the de-synagoguing of Christ and his disciples signaled a redemptive historical shift, the annulment of Judaism and its cult, the advent of Christianity and its church. If the killing of Christ and his disciples signaled a redemptive historical shift, then the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, like the hydra of the myth of Hercules, for every head which was killed, two more grew in its place. Indeed, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Thank you, Tertullian. If the loneliness of Christ signaled a redemptive historical shift, the grafting into the vine branches from Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, circumcised and uncircumcised, Caucasian and Hispanic, Afro-American and Asian-American, rich and poor. If all this triumphal glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ advances through this interadventual age, then we endure as the overcomers. We exalt as those who are more than conquerors. We possess a victory that no millennium, no millennium can surpass. I have overcome the world. Here is the antithesis out of which we live through Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit possesses us with a world that is the antithesis of this world. It is a world of glory. It is a world of the knowledge of God 
disclosed to us through his Son and by the Spirit. It is a world in which we see the Son. It is a world in which there is no sorrow. It is a world of joy, antithetical to the joy of this world. It is a world in which we are loved. We are loved. Loved of God the Father. Beloved of God His Son. Cherished of God the Holy Spirit. That is real love. And that is love sufficient for any soul joined to Christ. But this world is a world of faith. It is a world of leaning upon the breast of Jesus forever and ever and ever. It is a world in which we are never alone because he became alone so that he might bring us to his own precious breast. The Holy Spirit, as the down payment of the world to come, the Holy Spirit as the bringer of the eschatological antithesis from the future to the present cosmos. The Holy Spirit who brings us to Jesus, the Son of the Father, the Holy Spirit who brings heaven, brings heaven to dwell in our hearts. All right, we're at the time of the break. So if you'll take the five minutes to stretch your legs, we'll come back and take a look at John 17. I will entertain questions at the end of the second hour.